Well, if you're visiting with us uh, tonight, we're glad that you're here. We want to extend a warm welcome to you. For those who have been attending on our Wednesday evenings for uh, our Wednesday evening services, we are going through a series, uh, you know that we've been going through a series uh, through the Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, which is the confession that our church uses. Uh, and this evening, we've made our way to the third chapter of the Confession. So if, uh, if for some reason you didn't get one of these sheets with the, uh, with the, with the Confession on it, you may want to grab that just to be able to follow along with us as we work our way through it. So we're in chapter 3 this evening. If you have your sheet, you'll see that it is dealing with the doctrine of God's decree. Chapter 3 is on the doctrine of God's decree. So in other words, what, what chapter 3 is dealing with is the eternal plan that God has determined from eternity with regard to the events of history. He has mapped out every detail in human history. That is God's decree, his plan for creation. And that's what we're considering this evening as we look at the confession's teaching on it. Uh, it's worth mentioning, I'll probably at least make an attempt to men- mention this most weeks, just in case there would potentially be any confusion at all. We are teaching through the confession, not because we think the confession is in any way equal to the scriptures, uh, certainly in no way above the scriptures, uh, it's, it's not on level with the scriptures. The scriptures alone, as we've actually already read in the confession all the way back in chapter 1, the scripture alone is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So nothing can replace the scripture. It is the sole ultimate authority that we've been given with regard to the revelation of God. So then the question is, why do we study a confession? Why do we take time to study the confession instead of just going straight to the Bible? Uh, well, the, the reason we're going through the confession is because the confession is a very good and accurate summary of the Bible's teaching. And so, in as much as the confession represents the teaching of the Bible, we can, we can learn from it and we should learn from it. If in any way the confession was not supported by the, the teaching of the Bible, then it would have no value to us. If the confession said anything at all that we couldn't go to and see, oh, this is found here in the scriptures then it really carries no authority at all. But everything that we hopefully will see this evening and as we go through the confession, it carries weight because it is summarizing, it is referring and reflecting the teaching of the scriptures. And so our hope is that as we go through the the confession, really what we're doing is we're getting an accurate summary of the Bible's teaching with regard to foundational doctrines, really important doctrines for the Christian faith. That's what we're hoping. That's why we've chosen to go through the confession on Wednesday nights. Um, I quoted R.C. Sproul last week. I think Noel was the one to know the, uh, the quote or the, the line. He said that right theology should always end in doxology. Right theology should always end in doxology. And what that means, uh, as I explained a couple weeks ago, what that means is that when we understand rightly from the scriptures who God is, when that's apprehended by a heart of faith, it will always lead to worship. Everything we know about God, if it's true, and if our hearts believe it, will always produce in us worship. And that's exactly what we find in the scriptures when it comes to the, decree of, uh, the, the doctrine of God's decree. When the doctrine of God's decree is taught, it leads to worship. It leads to adoration. Uh, we see that in Romans 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 11. We'll start with this, and then we'll jump into the chapter 
Romans chapter 11, Paul, at this point in his letter, has spent three chapters uh, explaining and uh, working his way through the sovereign decree of God with regard to salvation. So having explained for three chapters God's decree, the way that God has sovereignly orchestrated the events of history and the salvation of his redeemed people, the Apostle Paul, having explained all of that, then responds in worship in verse 33. And then through the end of the chapter, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that, he might be paid back to, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The point there that Paul is making is when we consider the decree of God, the way that in eternity he has perfectly and wisely mapped out the course of creation, we step back and we say, I could never understand it all, but in what I do understand, I see a wisdom that goes so far beyond comprehension that all I can do is worship. I adore the God who is infinitely wise in the way that he has decreed the events of history. And so I hope that something similar will take place in our hearts as we consider the decree of God. I hope that as we see his wisdom and his power and his faithfulness, we'll respond like the Apostle Paul in some ways, saying, glory be to God. He is infinitely wise and wonderful in all of his ways. So as we jump into the confession, then you'll notice on one side, just like a couple weeks ago, there's the chapter 3 written out normally, as it is originally. Then on the back side of the sheet, there's somewhat of a thematic outline of the chapter. Um, So if you have a sheet here, you can notice on the back that this chapter of the confession can be broken up into two primary headings. First, there's God's decree in general, his decree of all things. And then second, in uh, beginning in paragraph three and then through the rest of the chapter, there's God's decree of election in particular, or the doctrine of predestination. So we'll consider first that first main heading, God's decree in general, the decree of all things. We'll just, like we did a couple weeks ago, we'll just go one phrase at a time as we work our way through the chapter. So first, the first heading there, God decrees all things freely and unchangeably. The paragraph says, God has decreed all things that come to pass. He has done this in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. So the main point there is simply this. God, before the world began, in eternity, before anything existed except Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternity, God had perfectly and wisely mapped out the events of of history, of creation. There was nothing outside of God. It says that he he did so freely. So there was nothing outside of God that forced him to determine certain things in history. He did it in himself, freely. And there's nothing that could ever change it. It's unchangeable, is the way the confession puts it. He has done it freely and unchangeably. So that there's nothing that could ever overthrow. And there's nothing that could ever alter the decree of God for his creation. We see this in Isaiah 46. Uh, So in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10, we read, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. 
then we would ask the question, what makes God God? He says, I am God and there is no other. So what makes him the God other than whom there is none? He says, I am God and there is no one like me. What makes him unique? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. What makes God God? There's no one like me, he says. I am the only God. What makes God God? Well, he says, from the beginning, I know what's going to happen in the end. And the reason I know what's going to happen in the end is because I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. My counsel will stand unchangeably. And the scriptures make clear that when it comes to God's decree, his counsel, his purpose, and his plan for creation, it includes everything from every atom Every leaf that falls from a tree, every raindrop that falls from the sky, everything you can think of is included in the sovereign and eternal decree of God. In fact, the scriptures teach, if you did the Jerry Bridges study, you'll remember some of the chapters on this. The the scriptures teach that God has decreed not only the good things that happen, but even the bad things. Things like sickness and natural disaster, even those kinds of things fall within the sovereign decree of God, his plan for creation. Again, from Isaiah, we read that men may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And this is what he says. Again, this is what makes God, God, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So Isaiah makes very clear whether it's good or bad, it has been decreed by God. All that comes to pass has been decreed by him. In fact, not only things like sickness and natural disasters and other types of events like that in this life are decreed by God, but even sin is decreed by God. I can see some of you cringe at that. Even sin has been decreed by God. And maybe, maybe that's hard to grasp, uh, Maybe you don't agree with that statement, but let me, let me ask a question. What is the most sinful thing that has ever taken place in creation? Anybody got an answer? The crucifixion of Jesus, right? I can't think of anything worse than murdering the Son of God. Now ask the question, what does the Bible say about the murder of God's Son? Acts 2, verse 23 This man, speaking of Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This man, Christ, he was nailed to death on a cross because of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so if you look at the most, that's Acts 2.23, if you look at the most evil event in history, the crucifixion of God's own son, The Bible says even that is decreed by God. It is part of his predetermined plan for creation. I'll point out in just a few moments that those who crucified Jesus were entirely responsible for their actions. But their responsibility, their choice to kill Jesus doesn't nullify the predetermined plan of God. It it doesn't nullify the fact that it falls within the predetermined plan of God. So God has decreed all things, the small and the great, the good and the bad, even the righteous and the sinful. God has decreed everything. It all 
has been planned and determined by him. And the outworking of that, as we see his plan worked out in history, it displays his glory. And that's the next point on the bulletin here, or on the outline. I've jumped to the end of the paragraph technically by bringing this point up to the top, but um, it follows the logic of the outline, so I did that. It says, God's decree displays his wisdom, power, and faithfulness. The paragraph reads, in all of this, in all of the outworking of God's predetermined plan, his decree for creation, in all of this, God's wisdom is displayed in his ordering of all things, together with his power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So again, as Paul the Apostle said in Romans 11, there is wisdom and power and glory displayed in the way that God brings about his predetermined plan for creation. But the Bible's teaching on God's eternal decree, I trust, I hope, uh, if you're thinking critically about it, raises a number of questions. It, it should raise a number of questions in our mind. So first of all, the question would be, does this make God the author of sin? If God has decreed all things, including the bad things, including the sinful things that take place in creation, then doesn't that mean that God is ultimately responsible for it? He's ultimately the source of it. Well, the confession answers that in uh, the first paragraph that I've listed there, 3.1b. Does God's decree make him the author of sin? Confession says, he has done this, he has decreed all things in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor does he share the responsibility of anyone in their sin. He neither authors it, nor shares in the responsibility of it. So, yes, all events fall within the sovereign decree of God. No, God is not the source of sin. Another way to put that would be, our sin does not originate in God or in his plan. Our sin does not originate in God or in his plan. Our sin originates in us and in our sinful hearts. God can, on the one hand, decree and determine that there would be particular events, including sinful events, that take place in his creation, and yet his determination doesn't nullify human responsibility, the fact that we are responsible for our sin. I'll say this a number of times uh, this evening as we go through the chapter, but I'll go ahead and say it for the first time, probably the first of three or four, that we, as we, especially as we study a doctrine like this, we have to hold biblical truths in tension with one another. Uh, there are certain things that if, if in the Bible, certain teachings in the Bible, that if we just grab hold of one side of the teaching, it will lead us into error. And if we just grab hold of the other side of the teaching, it will lead us into error. And, we, and, and so we need to grab hold of all that the Bible teaches and affirm all that the Bible teaches and be okay with the fact that we can't wrap our minds around it all. It would be wrong to call uh, anything in the Bible a contradiction. There, there is no contradiction in the Bible. But it's not necessarily wrong to say there are paradoxes, seeming contradictions. That's what paradox means. It seems, we, we can't seem to reconcile the two together. Uh, but just because we can't seem to reconcile the two together doesn't mean they can't be reconciled or that they aren't reconciled. God is the one who has sovereignly dec decreed and predetermined all that will come to pass, including sin. And yet the Bible just as clearly teaches that God can have no participation in sin and that sin could never find its source in him. Uh, for example, 1 John 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
Or James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Where does sin originate? Not in God. He can't tempt anyone with evil, nor can he himself be tempted. But it originates in the heart of sinful man, where lusts originate. So that's the first question that's raised. Is God the author of sin? And then similar to that, but second uh, in, in line here, does God's decree make us robots? Does the fact that God has predetermined all things that will come to pass mean that we really don't have any will at all? Doesn't it just make us basically forced into doing whatever it is that God has determined we would do? The confession responds, nor does he force the will of any creature, nor is the free working or contingency of second causes taken away, but it is rather established. God never coerces you or anyone into acting against your will. He he will never force you to make a choice that you don't desire to make. You always do what you want to do. That's, That's what this section here is is teaching. You always do what you want to do. So if you go back to that example of the crucifixion of Jesus, the worst evil that has ever taken place in human history, the murder of God's son, it's true that the cross is part of God's predetermined plan. It's true that he even determined which individuals would conspire together for the crucifixion of his son. All of that is true. And yet it's also true That those men who killed Jesus, killed Jesus because they wanted to kill Jesus. God did not have to change. It's it's not as though these men desired not to kill Jesus. But then in order to bring about his purpose, God had to force them to kill Jesus against their will. They did what they wanted to do. God worked not against their will, but through their will. Through their evil intentions in order to kill the Son of God. And so the scriptures never pit God's sovereign decree against human responsibility. It teaches both things. God is sovereign over all that will take place in history, and yet we are morally responsible before God to, for the decisions that we make. The choices that we make really do matter. We're responsible for them. You will always do what you want to do, and you're responsible for those decisions that you choose. And then... The next question raised from the second paragraph, or I guess the second question, sorry, the question that the second paragraph is answering would be, is God's decree dependent on foreknowledge? And so this would be an attempt that some people would make to maintain both of those truths, that God is sovereign and yet humans are really responsible. We, the, the right way to maintain both of those truths is to simply affirm them. God is sovereign and we are responsible. And, and we can do our best to search the scriptures to try to figure out how those two things work together, but we can't go beyond the scriptures. And so we're left with mystery. But there are efforts that are made to try to reconcile those two things according to human reasoning and philosophy. And so one of the ways that people have gone about that, the formal name of it is Molinism, but the way that they go about that is basically saying God has foreseen what decision you would freely make given any number of circumstances and scenarios. And so God knew the end that he wanted to lead all of creation toward. And he knew that if he, aligned, if he lined up these circumstances and these circumstances and put you in this scenario versus that scenario, then among all of the infinite possibilities, if he chose this one way and you were put into that exact scenario, then you would freely choose a certain thing. 
And so if you think about that, the, what that's saying is that God's eternal plan is dependent upon, at least in terms of its details, it's dependent upon the choices that he foresaw you making. And so his, his predetermined plan then is no longer free. It's no longer in himself, but his plan is now shaped and formed by something outside of himself, which is human decision, human choice. The confession explains... Although God knows everything that may or can come to pass according to all supposed conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, nor as what would have come to pass as a result of such conditions. And so it's simply saying God determined what he determined would come to pass in creation, not because of any factors that he saw outside of himself, not because of the choices he foresaw you making, but in the words of Ephesians 1 verse 11, because of the counsel of his own will. That's where it all originates, because he wanted to, not because he had to, because he knew what decisions human beings would make. So the first two paragraphs then are summarizing the Bible's teaching on God's decree in general, his decree of all things. Uh, God is never taken off guard or confused by the events that take place in his creation, uh, because all that takes place in creation, from the great things to the small things, from the good things to the bad things, All things fall under the scope of his eternal and unchanging decree, his plan. Now, why is that doctrine comforting and not crushing? As as you hear that God is sovereign in his decree, even over sin and suffering, why does that bring comfort to the believer and not crush the believer, or the unbeliever for that matter? It can't bring comfort to the unbeliever until they're in Christ. But why why should it bring comfort to the believer? Well, consider the alternative. Let's say that God is not sovereign over your circumstances. Let's say that your suffering or the sin that's committed against you is not part of God's predetermined plan for you. Let's say that God didn't actually will for those things to happen in your life. Those things found their source, their, or I shouldn't say source now that I've said he's not the author of sin, but those things don't find their purpose out, uh, in his will but outside of his will. How does that change the way you go through your suffering? Wouldn't that make all forms of suffering and affliction in this life meaningless, and pointless? We would be left to suffer the various tragedies and afflictions that we experience relationally or physically or emotionally, whatever they are, we would be left to suffer those things in the conviction that there's no meaning to them. There's no cause for them. They're pointless. They're outside of God's will for you. He didn't actually want those things to happen. And they lose all purpose and meaning. And that's a terrible way to suffer. But the doctrine of God's decree assures you there's nothing that happens in your life. Or in all of creation, in all the world events that are taking place today, there is nothing that's happening that God has not perfectly and wisely decreed to happen. And so that gives us comfort because we know there's no degree of affliction that we could experience in this life that's without meaning. It all has purpose. It all fits within the greater purposes of God for us and for his creation. We should never grow tired of the words of Romans 8... And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. There is nothing in your life that God is not using to conform you into the image of his Son. And that's the greatest thing you could desire if you're in Christ. So then we've considered God's general decree, 
Moving now to God's decree of election in particular, or the doctrine of predestination. So we'll just jump into the first paragraph there. God's decree of election is certain. The paragraph reads, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others are left to go on in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Then jump into the second paragraph. These angels and men who are predestined and foreordained are individually and unchangeably designated. Their number is so certain that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Now, to understand the Bible's teaching on predestination or the doctrine of election, we have to begin, first of all, with the doctrine of man, the doctrine of humankind. Who are we as fallen humans? How does the Bible characterize you? How does the Bible characterize me by nature? Well, the Bible is very clear about who we are by nature. It, it tells us that we are children of Adam, born into this world as heirs of his sin. Th that means that we have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin. We are condemned under the guilt of his rebellion against God. And then it also means that we have inherited the corruption of Adam's sin. Our hearts are corrupted. They are bent away from God towards sin constantly. As a result, we are by nature, biblically speaking, as the Bible makes very clear to us, we are by nature then, because of our rebellion, our sinful corruption, children of wrath. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are under the condemnation of God, rightly so and justly so, because we have re rebelled and rejected the authority of God. And so because of our inherent sinfulness then, because we have collectively and individually as, as mankind chosen to rebel against our creator, to basically shake our fist at him, and uh, I mean, Romans 1 gets pretty graphic about the, the way that we have exchanged his glory for wicked things. Because we have chosen to exchange the glory of God and instead pursue the sinful desires of our heart, God would have been entirely and completely just to leave the mass of humanity to itself in its sin. God would have been righteous. There would have been nothing unfair about it if God had determined to leave all of us in our sin and to leave all of us to the consequences of our sin, which is eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. That's what our sin has earned for us. But in his grace, God has chosen not to leave all of humanity to its sin. God has chosen to love and display his grace towards individuals from before the foundation of the world. And he determined that he would save certain people through his son. But he didn't choose to save everyone. Some he passes over. Or in the words of Romans 1, some he gives over to the desires, the, the corruption that they, that they are pursuing. He gives them over to their sinful desires. So when he does so, God, again, is not being unfair. It's not unfair to allow a sinful person. It would not have been unfair for God to allow you, as a sinner, to follow the course of the desires of your heart. He would have been righteous to do that. He would have been just. He would be simply allowing you to continue your own path that you have chosen 
for yourself in your sin. When we consider the the radical depravity, the corruption of the human heart, when we consider what the Bible teaches about our natural desire for sin and our natural rejection of God, the, the question is not, why does God not save everybody? But the question is, why would God save anybody? What, what is it in humanity that would provoke God to save anybody? We are all deserving of his wrath. What would cause him to save any of us? And that's where the next chapter of the confession goes. Uh, just as some references in terms of, or sorry, not the next chapter, but the next section of the confession. Uh, before we go to that, just a couple references regarding the, the doctrine of God's election or uh, predestination of, of sinful people for salvation. Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So he chose us, he predestined us, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, some more references for that would be Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 29 to 30, Romans 9, 11 to 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and so on. There's a number of passages all throughout the Bible that show God's sovereign and free election of sinners. So interestingly enough, the confession includes here angels. It says not only that he's predestined men, but also angels. Um, And the the New Testament speaks in a number of places about God uh, predestining angels. Basically what that means is that there are certain angels that fell. Satan, for example, and all of his minions. They fell from their standing in righteousness and God did not redeem them. But there are others who maintained their state of righteousness and they were predetermined by God to be righteous angels. So whether speaking of angels or of men, God knew in eternity who he had chosen, whom he had chosen for life and which ones he would leave to the influence and consequences of their own sin. So then the question becomes, why? Why particular people and not other people? Uh, Or from a more personal perspective as a believer, why me? What was it about me or what was it about others that caused God to choose them for salvation? The fifth paragraph in the confession reads, Uh, expressing that his decree of election is entirely gracious. It says, God, before the foundation of the world was, uh, before the foundation of the world was laid, chose those men who are predestined to life. He chose them according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel of his own good pleasure, of his will. He chose them in Christ for everlasting glory, solely on account of his free grace and love, without anything in the creature as a condition or cause moving him so to act. So did God choose you as a believer because of something in you? Uh, Of course not. The Bible makes very clear that it wasn't that he saw anything good in you. It, It wasn't that he saw that you would believe as the gospel was preached to you and therefore seeing your future belief, he chose you for salvation. Uh, It's not that he saw that you would be a particularly uh, helpful addition to his kingdom, and so he chose you because you were distinct and set apart from others. In fact, he knew from eternity who you were. He knew the depth of your depravity and your sin. He knew your obstinance and your rebellion and your unbelief. He knew all that would characterize your sinful heart, and yet he chose you for salvation because of his grace 
and because of his love. And he chose you in Christ. So he was able to predestine you, to choose you for salvation before the foundation of the world was because he saw you in connection with or in union with the redeeming work of his son. He could choose you. He could determine to save you despite your sinfulness because he had predetermined to do so through Jesus, through the redeeming work of Christ. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. There was grace granted to you in Christ in the sense that God determined to join you to his son before the foundation of the world. There was grace granted to you in Christ from eternity, from all eternity, Paul says. And so it is in Christ that we have been chosen, elected by God, by his grace for salvation. And then next, God's decree of election involves all necessary means. So again, that's the next point on the outline there. God's decree of election involves all necessary means. The paragraph reads, As God has appointed the elect to glory, so he has, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means to that end. Therefore, those who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed in Christ and are effectually called to faith in Christ by his spirit working at the appropriate time. They are justified adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith to salvation. None but the elect alone are redeemed by Christ. Only they are effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved. So God uses means to bring about his eternal purpose. Think for a moment about a builder. Let's say there's a builder who wants to construct a house, and so he has blueprints for that house. And so in all of the different pages of the blueprint are included every detail needed for the construction of that house. But no builder has ever gone directly from blueprints to finished product, finished, completed building. Uh, To build the building, he has to implement the necessary means to bring it about. He has to uh, hire the right people to put the right materials in the right places in the right order so that in the end, the building is completed in the exact way that the blueprints reflect. And we could think of God's eternal decree, particularly with regard to election, as a blueprint. He has mapped out every detail regarding the salvation of, uh, of, of those whom he would save. He's mapped it all out. He knows those that will be saved in Christ. But their salvation requires the application of the appropriate means. And so God doesn't just snap his fingers and suddenly make someone a non-believer into a believer apart from certain means. And those means are things like hearing the gospel preached. Someone needs to hear the gospel preached if they're going to be converted. Or, or being granted saving faith and repentance. Someone will not be saved apart from faith, and they will not be saved apart from repentance. So if God is going to accomplish his plan of saving sinners, then he must also accomplish in them saving faith and repentance. And they need to be sanctified and sustained by the Spirit all the way to the end in order for them to be saved. 
All of those are components of God's plan in order to bring about the end. They're all the means that he applies in order to accomplish our salvation. We see that in 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He has chosen you for salvation, but he has done so through sanctification by the Spirit and faith. In order for him to accomplish the purpose for which he chose you, which is eternal salvation, he must also sanctify you by the Spirit and give you faith. So let me ask a question that perhaps comes to mind as we think about the doctrine of election. Why should we evangelize? That's usually the the, the primary question that comes up and the objection. Why should we evangelize if God has already predetermined those who will believe the gospel and be saved? And one of the answers to that question, not the only answer, but one of the answers to that question is simply we evangelize because God uses means to bring about his purpose. He saves people through their faith in Jesus Christ. And people have faith in Jesus Christ only when they hear the gospel. And people only hear the gospel when someone preaches the gospel to them. And all of those require evangelism. If God is going to save sinners, then the gospel must be preached. That's Paul's argument in Romans 10, verse 14. He says, How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? In other words, how could they be saved if they don't know him, if they haven't believed in him? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? They never hear the name of Christ. How are they going to believe? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So the argument there is is very clear. How will they believe if they don't hear? How will they hear if there's no preacher? How will someone preach if he's not sent? And so the gospel must be preached because it is the means by which God calls his elect to himself. In fact, this is the confidence that we have in evangelism. Again, like we would lose all comfort in suffering apart from the doctrine of God's decree, so also we would lose all confidence in evangelism apart from the doctrine of election. We aren't preaching the gospel merely hoping that someone might happen to possibly respond by choosing to believe the message of the gospel. As we go out and share the gospel with others, it's not in this confidence that someone that we speak to may muster up the ability to believe. Instead, we we proclaim the gospel, we speak to others about Christ, even when it's very difficult, in the certainty that God will accomplish his plan. He will certainly call his own to himself through the faithful preaching of the gospel. And he'll do it even through weak efforts. So as we stumble our way through preaching the gospel, our confidence is God knows those whom are his. He knows those who belong to him. And we can preach the gospel in the certainty that he won't fail to call them to himself, even through the weakness of our efforts in sharing the gospel. We see that, in fact, in Paul's life. The Apostle Paul, uh, as he was suffering and experiencing all sorts of hardship in one of the cities that he traveled to as a missionary, he received this message from the Lord. In Acts chapter 18, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, 
for I have many people in this city. Paul, keep speaking. Don't be silent. Keep proclaiming the gospel because I have many people in this city. They will believe. They haven't yet, but they will. Keep preaching the gospel, Paul is, uh, God is saying to Paul. So evangelism is not a waste of time, but instead it's the means by which God accomplishes his plan and his purposes of salvation. Now lastly, the final section there, God's decree of election must be handled carefully. The doctrine of, his high, of this high mystery, God's truth known only by divine revelation, of predestination is to be handled with particular wisdom and care in order that men, giving attention to the will of God revealed in his word and being obedient to it, may, as a result of the certainty of their effectual call, be assured of their eternal election. In this way, this doctrine shall provide a cause of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation or comfort to all those who sincerely obey the gospel. The writers of the Confession recognized that there are a lot of dangers that go along with the doctrine of predestination. If we, as I've said, if we fail to maintain proper tension between all that the Bible teaches, if we fail to maintain the proper balance between certain truths of Scripture with other truths of Scripture, then we will have wrong ideas about God and we will believe things that are simply false and will drive ourselves crazy trying to make sense of it all. For example, we might fall into the trap of fatalism if we hold on only to God's sovereignty, his sovereign decree, and we lose sight of human responsibility. We could fall into the trap of fatalism, thinking that nothing that we do matters, that it's all mapped out, there's no point. But the Bible, all throughout its pages, I was reading this morning in Ezekiel chapter 33, if you want to see human responsibility at work, Read Ezekiel chapter 33 tonight. There is responsibility all throughout the Bible, and there is sovereignty on every page. There's also the danger of falling into the trap of hyper-Calvinism. So Calvinism wrongly construed, misconstrued, and taken to an extreme that it was, uh, the Bible uh, never teaches. So you could fall into thinking that there's no real free offer of the gospel, That we can't actually go into the world saying, look, if anyone here believes in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's true. If anyone here in this room tonight would believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And I can offer that freely and confidently because the Bible does. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures, he says. To every man and every woman, preach the gospel. And the argument is, but God knows those who will believe. How can we freely offer the gospel and say if someone comes and believes they will be saved if they're not elect and so on? And that's hyper-Calvinism. Those are arguments that the Bible does not force us to make. We simply affirm God will call the elect to himself, but at the same time, God is genuinely calling all men and women everywhere to repent. And if they fail to repent, it's not because of God. It's because of their own unbelief. Or we could fall into the trap of thinking God is cold-hearted, or unfeeling toward the non-elect. Again, I read in Ezekiel 33 this morning, and this passage came to mind uh, for the talk tonight. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked man turn from his way and live. 
Does God's eternal decree mean that he is cold-hearted and indifferent to the perishing of his creatures? Ezekiel says very clearly, God says through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the wicked, but rather that the wicked man would turn from his sin. How do you reconcile that with God's predetermined plan not to save all humans? Well, they're not in contradiction, even though they may seem to be to us. It's a seeming contradiction, not a true contradiction. We simply maintain both. God genuinely desires in some form that all men would repent and turn away from their sin. But at the same time, in his sovereign decree, he has chosen to elect those that he has predestined through Christ. We can't fit God into a nice, neat box. We can't even fit him into five points. We have to affirm what the Bible teaches regarding the sovereignty of God. And we have to affirm what the Bible teaches about the limitations of our minds and the responsibility of man. We'll we'll never understand all that God has purposed in his eternal decree. We can't understand all the inner workings of God. We saw that a couple weeks ago with regard to the incomprehensibility of God. There There are things that our finite minds simply can't wrap themselves around. But thankfully, God has revealed to us the things we need to know. And we stand on those things and we hold fast to those things, even when in our own finitude, we can't reconcile them all in our own reasoning. Again, it's important to recognize that God's thoughts are not ours. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We should not shy away from the Bible's teaching on predestination. I recognize that there are likely some here uh, who, who perhaps don't agree with what's been taught tonight um, or have a really hard time processing it and wrestling with it. I would be glad to talk afterwards uh, with anyone who feels that way. Um, but just because the doctrine is hard doesn't mean we shy away from it. We benefit when we try to understand all that God has revealed to us. We can't go beyond his revelation, but we should try to understand everything that he has revealed to us, including the doctrine of election. It is for the benefit of our souls to do that. Some of the things that the confession mentions here that, uh, that we benefit from as we come to an understanding of the doctrine of election, assurance and comfort. As we see the evidence of faith and repentance in our lives, it assures us God has chosen me in love before the foundation of the world. And there is nothing more comforting than knowing that our fate rests in the hands of a sovereign and eternally loving God. It gives assurance. It gives comfort. As we've seen, it produces praise and reverence and admiration. And it also produces humility. In just a moment, we're going to sing uh, how sweet and awesome. And in that uh, song, beginning in the second verse, there are these lines. It says, while all our hearts and all our songs uh, join, is that, yep, join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands, we could say millions, make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. It should produce in us humility. We should ask the question, why was I made a guest at the table of the king? And the doctrine of God's sovereign decree reminds us it's not because of anything in me. 
It's not because of anything in you. It is owed only and entirely to the eternal love of a gracious God. So it should produce in us humility. Well, that's chapter 3 on the doctrine of God's decree. Let's pray together. Father, we do confess that as we read and study these things, we find very tangibly the limitations of our own minds and ability to reason. Um, But we thank you, God, that you haven't required of us that we understand what you have not revealed to us, but simply that we believe what you have revealed to us. Um, So we pray that you would give us hearts of faith. We pray that we would submit ourselves under your word, not put ourselves over your word. Uh, Give us grace to believe and to accept and to rejoice in the truth that you've given to us. Um, We do thank you for the grace that has been given to us through Jesus Christ from all eternity. We thank you that in him we have a certain and uh, unchangeable destiny, an eternal inheritance that could never fade or perish. God, we thank you for Christ and for the security and the assurance that we have in him. We pray in his name alone. Amen.